0: Hey, everybody. I'm Micah Rich.
1: And I'm Olivia Kane.
0: And welcome to the Weekly Typographic.
1: A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week.
0: Hello, Olivia. Hey, Micah. That was my movie announcer voice.
1: I like it. I always like the SNL announcer who does the opening credits. And we have (laughs) Micah Rich.
0: That is great. That's a good impression. That's really good. We have kind of an interesting week here in front of us.
1: Yeah, I'm really enjoying the variety of articles we have this week to talk about uh, that have been in the newsletter. We're going to be talking a little bit about our upcoming workshop with Alana, which will be happening tomorrow when this podcast comes out. And uh, what's the nerd alert this week? Well, you were
0: forcing me to do a nerd alert again, and this time I tried to be more prepared than just making you ask questions of me like last week. So it's a topic that I am actually very interested in. And I might have mentioned at one point on the podcast that I like briefly went to school for this topic is that's how interested I am. And so we're calling it the look of luxury brands, bags and breaking the rules, which was a genius. That was that was all you. That was great. Um, And so.
1: It might have been Steph, too. Oh, yeah, but,
0: that's fair. You know. Steph has a great mind for this kind of stuff. We were we were brainstorming last night. But the point of that is talking about how the rules for designing a luxury brand or something that you want to feel like luxury are often very counterintuitive from the way that we design most other products. And so I thought, well, you thought maybe I could share some of my thoughts and and learning on the anti-rules of luxury marketing for brands.
1: I think it's just super interesting. And I think we'll also kind of be talking about what it means for designers and like certain design decisions that get made to create this air of luxury and what that means for the world of branding, which I know our audience is is interested in. So I think it's going to be really fascinating. We kind of touched on this talk a few weeks ago when we talked about this article that mentioned the minimalism effect of logos and fashion. It was a little bit of an argument for that, which you rarely hear. And I think that springboard us to be like, this is an interesting conversation because yeah. it lives beyond the world of logos. But the logo is actually like a manifestation of how we see luxury when we're just like walking down the street. Because people might not even know what Balenciaga looks like, but maybe we'll see the storefront and can imagine what that would be. So I don't know. I don't want to get too <laughs> into it, but I'm really excited about your first Yeah,
0: I think that'll be fun. But before we get into all of that, right? We have a workshop coming up. When this comes out, it'll be happening tomorrow, like you said. Bettering your lettering with the wonderful and very talented Alana Flowers, whose birthday is this week. And... It's going to be really cool. It's centered around learning digital lettering on the iPad. I think maybe one or two people have felt like, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know about that iPad part. But I think what's really beautiful is that it's going to be an excuse to learn lettering basics and like the terminology behind it Mm -hmm. and techniques that you can apply to whatever medium you are using. And we have had many discussions about the differences and similarities of lettering and type design and how much interesting and creative crossover there is there. And so I'm really excited for kind of our first workshop in the lettering sphere of that Venn diagram. And I just know Alana is such a good teacher and she's so friendly and approachable that I just know that it's going to be really fun. So I'm psyched.
1: I'm really excited. Mike and I will be there this weekend with Alana. I might even be working on a lettering piece alongside everyone because it's like a kind of like letter with me sort of workshop. So everyone that joins is going to have like finished pieces if they have, you know, an iPad or a tablet. So I'm really looking forward to kind of practicing those skills it's gonna be fun And we always
0: try to mention too that if you can't make the timing it's this weekend 12 to one thirty eastern time and if you can't make that timing live you still get the recording if you buy a ticket and i think the recording is going to be just as valuable as the live experience so keep that in mind totally
1: all right first uh news link of the day comes from it's nice that it's titled When in Doubt, Simplify. Mark Bloom on his latest release and launching Co-Type Foundry. So I sent this along so we could put it in the newsletter. First of all, I was just kind of taken aback from the really beautiful cover art for it. It's an image of Mark Bloom's typeface Betatron. And it's just kind of like a new take on the sci-fi aesthetic. And it's like sci-fi aesthetic, but like super pared down, simplified, pretty modular in a way with some really creative letter forms. So check out that typeface in the article. It's actually free, which I think is great. So I believe it's under the Creative Commons license. So go ahead and grab that if you're interested. But in general, the whole article kind of talks about his path as a designer He's basically been in the design industry for decades and started off as a junior designer at a company, then slowly created his own studio, and then was kind of battling the struggle of having a foundry and a studio, found that his like true passion was with his foundry, and left his graphic design studio to focus full-time on his foundry. And I think that's kind of an interesting story. And the pathway to type design that Mark had was he had a project where he was prompted to rethink the Royal male identity. So I believe that's in the UK. Mm-hmm. And so through that, he created his first typeface um, to, sit alongside, to sit alongside the logo. And like, I just love that idea of being a designer Being like, oh, I need to create my own typeface for this. And then suddenly falling in love with something. And I feel like it's just an interesting pathway. And I think probably gives him a unique perspective in the type design world.
0: Yeah, and the work is super professional. This particular font that that kind of kicks off the article is very interesting. It describes it as sort of being inspired by sci-fi movies. And I think that's an interesting differentiation than just the category of sci-fi. Because I can totally see this being like... You know, we've talked once or twice about, like, the UI of science fiction movies, like designers who fake UIs in movies, and I can totally see this being in some Tom Cruise science fiction movie on, like, the computer screen that's floating in front of his hands or something.
1: Totally. I mean, I rarely see The Matrix being quoted as inspiration for sci-fi lettering, because The Matrix is, like, fairly new. It came out in the year 2000, I think.
0: New? Uh, Fairly new in
1: the sci-fi lore. It's like 20
0: years ago, man.
1: It's newer than like the 80s sci-fi, you know, zeitgeist or whatever. So for me, that feels like an interesting inspiration. And I can definitely see the correlation here. And because this feels like such a different sci-fi typeface than what I've seen before. Yeah.
0: And worth mentioning, like you had said, it's the Creative Commons license, which is definitely interesting. We should at some point probably do a nerd alert about that because that was actually what the league started with until we discovered the open font license. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're free to use this personally and commercially and copy and redistribute it basically in any medium that you need. You just have to give credit and link back and you can't change it or make a new version based on it.
1: Good to know. I like that. One of my favorite new font finds maybe from this last half of Mm. the year. So very fun, especially the numerals. I've just been scrolling through the page and landed there. Oh, very cool. Micah, our next article is from Nan, and <laughs> it is the tragicomedy of digital fonts. I love the word comedy.
0: Nan sounds like you're talking about like Nana, like your grandma.
1: Do we say N-A-N? I have no idea. This N-A-N? is one of those
0: computer things that I'm like, you know, I know what it's referencing, but I don't know how to say it out loud.
1: It's written by, oh gosh, Frank Adebaye.
0: Also difficult to read. I need to talk to Frank
1: (laughs) and find the pronunciation. That is my best attempt. Well, Mike and I were both like, whoa, this is actually pretty difficult to read (laughs) in the type that it's typeset in. We both had those feelings, so I'm getting that out of the way. That might be tough for some people. Once you move past that though, I actually like really fell in love with this article, Hmm. more so than I even imagined. I think You rarely get people kind of taking a critical look at the recent history of type design. So thinking about the history of web fonts and thinking about the creation of Arial, thinking about how I love this point they make when they talk about Gotham, that even though Gotham exploded in popularity, they missed the web font explosion, Hmm. That's why you actually don't see Gotham on the web so much, and instead you see Montserrat. Yeah, and that was a really interesting observation. They talk a little bit about NFTs. They talk about a little bit. They do a nice comparison of Arial versus Helvetica, which I always love looking at those fine details. And they talk about the creation of Google Fonts and very popular typefaces on the web, like Noto and Open and Roboto, and a little bit of that history there. And so I just I rarely come across articles like this. I was intrigued, and just had a good time reading it. To be honest,
0: there's a couple interesting quotes in here. I have to admit, you know, I haven't entirely processed this article completely. Uh, There's there's a lot to it. Um, but I think I think maybe you had mentioned the quote here that that once digital type is mostly theatrical with variable fonts, Mm. they're more animated. They're bound to either shout or aptly. Talk and whisper. I think that's a really interesting perspective on what's going on at Type at the moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like they definitely have their finger on the pulse, kind of talking about what's in front of us and what's coming in the future. They also mentioned this Adobe Max keynote from Monotype. Monotype did this keynote at Adobe Max. And they were going through trends, and then through that they created. They called this trend "Oh No Nouveau," and so it was basically applauding the work that James Edmondson is doing at Oh No and calling it like a trend and shouting it out with its own slide. But then there's like the weird irony of Monotype is like the big commercial giant. Oh, no, stands for Indie Foundries. They helps create future fonts. I really do think James Edmondson is really trying to support Indie Foundries that don't get eaten up by mm-hmm. monotype. It was like a very unexpected contrast. I think it's funny that they mentioned it. And it's just like, was that a heartfelt decision by someone behind the scenes? Or like, it's kind of weird to think if that was like anything strategized? Or is it something acknowledging that maybe we can't create the... Deep imaginative typefaces from Ono. Oh uh. so I guess let's highlight them instead. <laughs> Interesting, but yeah, it's a tragic comedy. It's like it's it's just like very funny observations that are going on that are kind of passing us by.
0: There was also a reference in here. I don't want to talk about it too much because I haven't quite explored it yet. But uh, you mentioned it, the NF Type And Mm. I do not understand NFTs well enough. I've been trying to understand it. They make no sense to me. And this like NFT in the type realm is very weird and interesting that at some point we have to explore. But I don't even know where to start.
1: Yeah. Agreed. But
0: (laughs) also agreed. Right. Like in everything. (laughs) Over winter break, maybe we'll (laughs) research it and try to figure something out to talk to people about. I don't know.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in general, I think it's like I'm all for people taking a look at things happening in the industry with a kind of, you know, critical eye, but also like a sense of humor throughout the whole thing. And so, definitely enjoyed this. Go check it out. I think it'll kind of maybe illuminate some histories that you actually haven't heard about before, too. Mm. So, worth it.
0: All right. Next up, we have Brick Font by Craig Ward. What do you think about this, Olivia?
1: Oh my God, I think it's really interesting, but also because I've done a similar project. Craig Ward. Yeah, I did a similar project in college and it was very illuminating for me about type design. But let me tell you about the project. So, creative director, designer, author Craig Ward. I think Craig Ward's like a pretty big deal in the industry. I don't know much about him, to be completely honest, but definitely someone of note has made an intricate typography series made of Lego bricks. And he's dubbed it Brick Font. And it's really an exploration of the limitations of typeface design and the modularity of what can you create only using a specific set of parts and how do you build a system using these limitations. And I'm just pretty interested in that. I remember in college, I like recreated a Frederick Gaudi typeface, but only used one centimeter cubes, like the teacher's learning cubes when you learn about math. You have like tiny centimeter cubes. And I just like glued a bunch together and it all looked like alias type, except that it was like physical. It was like three inches high and like one centimeter deep. And it was like really colorful. And in general, I think it's a way to teach yourself about modularity in fonts and how to think about how to make fonts out of small components and similar to how pixel fonts used to work too. You know, you have a set parameters and I think in a way it allows you to think about how to use those parameters creatively and with some imagination because you have limitations and restraints on your exploration.
0: That's such a good art school mentality. That is maybe one of the few things that I agree with from art school.
1: Mm. <laughs> I know you love some good limitations to allow you to, like, breed imagination. What do you think? I think there's some really just fun type in here that I never would have thought you can make with Legos. Yeah, you
0: know, honestly, the variety is very impressive. You know, different types of letter forms that have distinct personalities, I feel like different fonts. I was impressed by the anti-aliased version of Helvetica Mm -hmm. by just using, like, different gray colored Lego blocks. Also, I love Legos when I was a kid. I had a giant bucket of Legos. So this is totally up my alley. But it's it's very, it's very impressive. Sometimes stuff like this, I'm just like, what is this for? Is this just to do cool stuff for fun?
1: Well he says, I guess in one of his Instagram posts that part of the idea behind this project is to create modular typefaces. And then he'll sell the templates for these typefaces as downloadable PDFs through like an Etsy store. And then I think like you could kind of create your own type with the templates Hmm. is the idea. But overall, pretty fun. I also think it it allows us, I think like so many people that don't know about type design or like super beginner think that type design is like all about the outline of your letter forms. Uh. And this shows a different way to think about type really being the form, the interaction of negative and positive space. And it makes you rethink what your outlines can be because you don't have control about the outline of a Lego brick, but you can control how you build the form with the Legos instead.
0: That's very on point. Well put, my friend.
1: Thanks. I just like really enjoyed all the articles this week (laughs) and just very humbled that we could chat about them. (laughs) But now I'm very excited to turn the mic over to you, Micah
0: Rich. Oh, I don't like that phrase, turn the mic over. Oh, yes. I'm still going to make you participate. Don't worry. You're better at this than I am. But...
1: I mean, I'll still be here
0: with you. Well, so we included a link this week that we sort of found to get the conversation flowing, which I actually thought was was a pretty interesting article titled, Here's the Only Good Pricing Strategy for Luxury Brands. It was written a year ago. Okay, where do we start? Let's start at the beginning. You kind of try to encourage me to come up with a handful of bullet points. And I've always sort of been fascinated by how different luxury branding has felt. And I think I have inherently tried to incorporate some of these ideas without explicitly knowing them into a lot of my own branding work early in my design career, including things like The League, that I only recently started trying to research and understand the actual reasoning behind what these things are and why they work and like why I design that way. And so I think the big question about luxury as a differentiation design, like what makes luxury luxury? How are we differentiating luxury from a normal brand design, like a, a product that you find in Target or even something that is like very expensive and high end versus luxury? And I think there are actually a handful of points to differentiate. And a lot of this, to be fair, is coming from a really amazing book that I acquired a couple of years ago called The Luxury Strategy. Break the Rules of Marketing to Build Luxury Brands, I think is the subtitle, something like that. So there's a handful of things that I think make luxury kind of unique. It's There's an overarching idea that... Luxury is a thing that you desire to make yourself appear higher status. Okay. I think that is basically always true. And one of the first points that makes something luxury versus just expensive or premium is that you actually can't compare a luxury brand to anything else when you want to buy a Lamborghini You're not thinking, what's a better purchase? Do I go for the Lamborghini or do I go for the Aston Martin? Mm -hmm. Those particular brands have different feelings behind them. They have different qualities to what those things are. And so you just can't compare it to anything else. You're buying a luxury thing for the brand and to make it visible that you can buy from that brand. So a lot of it is wrapped up in like the story behind the brand and that is part of what makes something incomparable. So part of that differentiation is like premium is high priced and might show the world that you can afford an expensive thing but luxury is like this symbol of status where like money doesn't matter and you're buying it to be a part of that club
1: So we know luxury brands and fashion and you're giving examples in cars. But is, like, a premium brand or a premium purchase something that still feels accessible to people?
0: Yeah, in a sense. A point of differentiation here is that, like, something that is premium kind of still has to be justified, the cost versus what you're getting. Okay. If you want to buy something that's expensive, you're still comparing it to something else and being like, is it worth the money that I'm spending on this?
1: For example, when you buy a Casper mattress, I wouldn't say Casper is a luxury Mm. brand, but they sell expensive mattresses and you could still potentially compare them to other thousand plus dollar mattresses, but they're not like the $10,000 mattress or they're not the brand that has a big equity in their heritage.
0: Yeah, that's a really cool example because you're still thinking like, yeah, I'm willing to pay the price because I think the price is justified by how good that mattress is, but I'm still thinking like, should I pay you know $1,000 for this mattress or like $800 Mm. for this other mattress? So that differentiates it as a premium product, but not luxury. I don't even know if there is luxury mattresses that exist. I don't even know.
1: I found out about a luxury baseball hat that they wear on Succession the other day, and it's a $500 baseball hat. And it's so interesting.
0: I noticed the baseball hats on Succession the other day. You got me into Succession and I've been watching as the new season comes out. Um, Yeah, see, that's interesting because it's just black. It's just black. There's no logo on it.
1: It's a $500 hat. It's like someone found the company that makes this hat.
0: That's fascinating. Okay, so let me get to point number two, which I think is kind of interesting and brings it into a whole new sphere, which is that luxury products are flawed. And you love the product for the flaws and almost in despite of the flaws. Okay. And so actually in in this textbook <laughs> that I mentioned, they made the point to say that a luxury brand watch, which they didn't name. So I can't even reference which one it is because, I'm, you know, I can't afford any of them. But they were like, when you buy it, you're warned that this watch loses two minutes every year. Wow. Whereas like other watches on the market that are premium, I think that one they mentioned is like Psycho. S-E-I-K-O. They make expensive watches, but they make it to attain perfection in timing where like it does not lose any time. Whereas the luxury ones, you're like buying it to have a Rolex on your wrist and you're okay with the fact that like it doesn't keep perfect time. That's not really what you're going for.
1: Interesting.
0: Well, actually, they give another watch example, too, where a lot of the luxury watches don't show all the numbers. And so you kind of have to guess at what time it is. And that's like a wow. weird design flaw for a timekeeping device to have to guess at what time it is. That's a flaw. But that's the case in a lot of super high end luxury watches. And it's not flawed for the sake of having a flaw. But and this is my kind of interpretation of my understanding of this is that the flaws exist as like a sacrifice in honor of some artistic vision.
1: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to add on to this with one really interesting quote I found in the article you included in the newsletter. The article is written by someone that really examines luxury brands on a day-to-day professional business. And he said that we found categories in which the top tier brands generated 10,000 times more value than brands in the same categories that only provided functional value. Mm. So it just like really hits home that With luxury, like the function of it is not necessarily the reason people are paying money for it. Like it's really going back to what you're saying. Like there's so much more to it.
0: And I think you will like this. There is some history to that of 19th century European royalty where luxury at that time was made by a craftsman. And it was made for the king or the duke or something like that. Where it was made by this craftsman, and so it was just inherently rare because it was being handmade for this person, and so there would naturally be flaws in the creation of that thing,
1: Mm. and that
0: makes it unique, Mm -hmm. which also makes it even more valuable. Like nobody else has this thing because it was made for me, and yeah, even the flaws are incomparable.
1: One hundred percent. I mean, that's the difference. Bringing this to the lettering world in having a lettering font, like a handwritten font on the front of your envelopes for an invitation for a wedding versus having someone do the same style of lettering as your font, but by hand, knowing there will be flaws. And that process, calligraphy is just like 10 times more expensive than setting it, typesetting it in a font. And even though it's not perfect like the font, people have accepted that it's more valuable because there was a craft person behind it.
0: There's two other points that I thought there were especially interesting. There's a lot of points in this book, if you're super curious about this. It's a hefty read. It's a textbook, but I find it fascinating. So the other two points that I thought were interesting to mention, one is that it should be difficult to buy, which is so counterintuitive, mm-hmm. right? Especially working on the web these days, like you design the user experience to be as easy and intuitive as possible. But part of the rarity is having to earn the purchase the item so you can't just buy it like think Mm -hmm. of the shops where the price is not listed and you walk in and you know like a restaurant or something where there's no price on the menu you Mm -hmm. know that you're gonna look like an idiot if you ask how much it is Mm -hmm. and it's kind of this expectation that money doesn't matter it's about what i want
1: Mm -hmm. obviously you're talking about a different element of luxury but i think that also relates to The no numbers on the face of a watch. Mm -hmm. And I think that also, Mike and I have talked about. I used to work in event design, and there was a point when we stopped making restroom signs at huge, like huge galas, like galas in a huge museum. We wouldn't make a restroom sign to point to where the restrooms are because that takes away the luxurious air of the event. Because if you think if you're in a really nice restaurant, You're not going to have a sign to the restrooms. You go ask someone and there's someone at your service. Yes. So the design of luxury is very nuanced in specific ways that we're not even talking about the font choice or anything like that. We're talking about the user experience of luxury and the user experience of luxury at a high-end restaurant is no numbers on the menu, no prices. That's a user experience and that was designed into the experience. Which
0: perfectly segues into the last point that I thought was super interesting from like a designer's perspective. If you're considering trying to make something luxury as a designer, the point described in the book, I love the way it's described, which is dominating the client. And you know, they describe that as like, it doesn't mean being disrespectful. They kind of describe it as almost like the brand is a parent to you, the customer, you respect them, but there's some sense of authority some awe of mystery or something that the customer will look up to and desire because you are making what you think needs to exist. And the customer or the client there either gets it and wants it or doesn't. And it's not for you. And there's something really interesting about that. If you're thinking about it from a designer's perspective, like I want to make something feel luxury. It's not exactly arrogance. It needs to come across as confidence in your artistic vision for the brand and what the brand is and what they sell.
1: I love that. I think about how that relates to design in a way. Let's say you go to Gucci.com. No. <laughs> Let's say you go to a luxury brand's website. I don't know. It could be Gucci. It could be wherever. Like think of a brand and you're not buying, you know, the big ticket item, but maybe you're buying a wallet and that wallet's like a thousand dollars. So on so forth. When that gets shipped to you you have this experience on the web and then it gets shipped to you but it's in just like a plastic bag mailer and the wallet's in just like a clear plastic bag and there's not like Mm. an experience tied to that you're gonna have like this disconnect because the authority has already been created that this is like the perception of it and then the reality of it in your hands is oh wait i thought like these were the people i was supposed to be in awe in this looks like something that i could get from like claire's or something (laughs) I've had packages come to me where I'll spend like maybe a couple hundred dollars online and then something gets to me and it's eh, just looks like someone took it out of the merchandising back stock and threw it in a bag. And it's like slightly disappointing because there needs to always be that awe and experience. That's why Apple does what mm-hmm. it does so well. And Apple isn't necessarily luxury, but they probably take a lot of cues from luxury brands.
0: They do for sure. And not to give away any secret sauce or self-importance or anything like that, but I think inherently that was, that was a lot of the design mentality that I looked up to when I was starting my career, and that was what I unknowingly infused into The League where we have a small and hand-selected catalog that lots of people over the years were sort of, why don't you have more fonts in there? And it was always sort of, well, those are the fonts that we think should be in there. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were like flaws with the fonts, right? And it was sort Mm -hmm. of like, well, that's what the fonts are. And, you know, I always kind of naturally tried to put that in. I think for that artistic integrity side of it, I was always just kind of drawn to that. And so it made me think of what other brands that are kind of like off kilter, not the normal ones that you would think of like Gucci or whatever. And the first one that I thought of was like Starbucks, which we mentioned, I think. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, you are comparing when you're buying Starbucks, like, is this the coffee that I want to be paying $7 for versus the indie shop down the street or something, you know? And so that Comparison almost makes you realize that while they're taking a lot of cues from luxury, and they, they certainly try to build in a lot of backstory and get to that luxury status, it's still capped at premium rather than luxury. Yeah. But then the next one that occurred to me is something that you showed me that I have been lusting after for the last few months, which is Last Crumb Cookies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... If you don't know this brand, it's Olivia's fault that I follow them. And it's like some advertising firm that started it, right? What's the story there? It
1: was the branding, stu- the, one of the branding studio members, I think it's called Truffle, is like the co-founder of a cookie company.
0: And so it's this absurd, decadent cookie company where they have a limited amount that they make every week. And they like drop it at a certain time and you have to get there first Mm -hmm. to get them. They're absurdly, it's like $11 a cookie or something like that. And they come in this like premium texturized package with like these totally absurd names and decadent photographs and this giant two foot box that you have to unpack with two hands. And it's absurd And such a beautiful example, I think, of luxuries in something you wouldn't expect, like cookies.
1: Again, the design mimics luxury tactics. Like, I know all the cookies have serial numbers. It's absurd, but it's hilarious, but it's great. But I actually think
0: that does count as luxury in this sphere because there is some weird backstory there. And there's a backstory to each of the cookies, the names have interesting stories attached to them. And the fact that it's difficult to acquire them, and, you know, it's not just that they're absurdly expensive, it's that they just go all out with this crazy artistic vision that is super bonkers and doesn't even make any sense, and you love them for it.
1: Yeah, 100%. And you're not comparing it to any other cookie. Like, you have no cookie to compare it to, basically, because it's in a league of its own, which is hilarious because we're talking about cookies. But That's a
0: perfect example, I feel, because, like, you know what a cookie tastes like. You know what a really great cookie tastes like. And it still doesn't matter. You want the last crumb cookies because they are last crumb cookies, and it's such a weird experience.
1: Yeah, 100%. Oh, my God. (laughs) So much fun. I knew we were going to have a blast. I'm so glad we got into the weeds. I, I'm excited for everyone. Listening. I hope
0: that was useful perspective from, you know, you'd sort of asked me to think about it from what it means for designers. And I think those are things that you can be ruminating on and basically use those bullet points to try to craft backstory and experience and rarity and recognize and celebrate flaws without being apologetic. And all of these things, I think, are things that you could infuse into a new brand that doesn't have a hundred year history and you're starting tomorrow. You could take those ideas and put them into that and make something that is almost luxury from the get go or take something that used to be like a normal consumer product and find some way to transform it into luxury if that is the thing that you were trying to design for.
1: Yes. What a great little conclusion. You did great.
0: Who knew I was an expert?
1: Excellent work, my friend.
0: Well, I guess the school that I went to, they knew that I was an expert, but whatever.
1: hmm Well, don't forget about the workshop tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a really fun time. Again, if you can't make it at our time zones, just sign up and you'll still get the recordings of what happens and all of Alana's teachings. And if that's all. I
0: think that's it.
1: We'll see you next week.
0: Do-do-do-do. do Do-do-do-do. <laughs>